You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. So it's eighth grade, North Canton Middle School on Charlotte Street. Third floor, corner classroom, last week of school. It was like 120 degrees in there. I remember because there was no AC back then. And we were given a career aptitude test. You know what those things are? These great like tests that assess like your personal abilities, your skill sets, your personality, and then they tell you who you're supposed to be. So we sat in our desks, we checked a couple hundred boxes. You wanna know what mine said? That day I learned that I should have been one of three things. I should have been a farmer, a forest ranger, or a fashion designer. (laughs) Why are you laughing? That wasn't a joke. Identity is super important, isn't it? Who you are, really. Developmental psychologists tell us that identity formation begins in the womb. As we enter our preteen years, we begin to ask questions like, who am I really? As we move through life, pain and pleasure have ways of affirming or denting our identity. Identity is really important. So this is our second week in our 13-week summer teaching series through Ephesians. Last week, two verses. This week, we're going to mash on the gas a little bit, and uh, I can't wait. This morning, we're talking about the power of God to tell you who you really are, your identity. Twelve verses, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. So you can turn there, flip there, scroll there. Twelve verses. We've got a lot of hate of Baal, but this is one of my favorite places in all of Scripture, and I think you'll see why. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. We'll get there in just a second. So before we get to the text, um, just a couple quick details that I want us to watch out for. First off, this entire section, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, this is one giant run-on sentence. I knew I loved you, Paul. So good. God bless run-on sentence people. All of this is one giant sentence. Our English translations break it up into like five or six, but in Greek, it's one big sentence. Here's why I bring that up. Urgency. You got the sense, even in the reading, didn't you, that Paul is just like unloading. He's got this truth that he wants to get out of him like a shook up pop bottle. He's just like, ugh. This is not Paul sitting wistfully back, thoughtfully writing eloquent prose. This is Paul in prison, Paul under pressure, desperate to get the truth out of his heart and into the Ephesians' ears. So that's the first thing I want you to watch out for. Second detail that I want us to watch out for is... This, the, the form of these verses is really unique. This is in the form of a hymn of praise. It's really significant. A few of us this last week were sitting in the office and we were talking about how um, just like joyless our world has become. Have you noticed that? Like ever since whenever, 
we've just kind of like forgotten how to be joyful a little bit. And this letter, written by a dude in prison to a church surrounded by darkness, starts out with this torrential fire hydrant of praise. General life principle, what you become is what you behold. <laughs> and church wants, Paul wants this church to behold what only God has done so they can understand what only God can do. A posture of praise has a unique way of diminishing doubt. Third detail, and this is the biggie. All through this section, Paul uses 11 identity words. 11 words that boldly say, before we get to anything else, you are not who you feel you are. You are who God says you are. And if you thought last week with saints and faithful was too good to be true, just wait till you see where Paul leads us this morning. If we don't get this first, who we are in Christ, everything else is a wash and a waste, as useless as fortune cookies. <laughs> so here's where we're going and how um, I think would be the right way to approach this text. First, we're going to read the whole section straight through, just so you can get a sense of it. Second thing we're going to do is we're going to focus on those 11 identity words and what they mean. And so if you're taking notes, sharpen your pencils for that. Third, we're going to talk about why Paul uses the words that he does. These words are chosen really intentionally. And then we're going to wrap up with what you can actually do about this. So, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth." In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I told you it was a lot. Like he barely comes up for air. It's wonderful. I want to try and hit all 11 of these words in like the next seven minutes or so. This is going to come fast, so you've been warned. First word, blessed. Did you notice that? Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Blessed loosely means the giving of a good. The giving of a good. This is dad language. This is what good parents do. And even though this is in the past tense, he has blessed us, the word here suggests that this blessing keeps going. God keeps giving good to his kids because this is who God is. He wants to bless you. Second word, chosen. 
even as he chose us in him. Literally, this means taking the smaller number out of the larger number. It's a relational word. Same word that's used in the Old Testament when it talks about how God chose his people Israel. Well, when does this happen? This is before the foundation of the world. God's perfect choice is folded into God's perfect plan. As one commentator put it, the Christian's life depends on a love that has no beginning and no end. Chosen. Chosen for what? What did he choose us for? Great question. Glad you asked. Two words, and now we're going to slow down just a little bit. That we should be holy and blameless. Holy. Holy is a ceremonial term. If chosen is God looking at you and picking you out from a crowd and saying, mine, holiness is him washing you clean. It's a ceremonial term, making you pure, completely new. The word holy means you are not now who you once were. Praise God for that. But holy is paired with blameless. Blameless, this means without spots or blemish. Holy and blameless, they kind of go together. Holy, ceremonial clean, blamelessness, so that nothing is wrong at all in how God sees you. Here's what this means. In Christ, at the point of your salvation, you are instantly seen as holy and blameless before God. We're going to hang here for a minute because it's super important and not every church teaches this. If you come from a Catholic background or you come from a background where you would depend on some of your works to make you right before God, your version of holy and blameless may sound a bit like this. I kind of slowly become holy and blameless over time. Right? Like, I got to say some prayers. I got to do some things. I have, I have to somehow contribute to my own righteousness over time, right? And at the end of my life, I may become righteous, right? So that's called, theologically, that's called infused righteousness. Here's you, here's righteousness, and gradually over time, you are infused with righteousness. Problem with infused righteousness is scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture teaches not infused righteousness, but imputed righteousness. That means that all at once, righteousness is given to me. I become, before God, instantly holy and blameless. And you say, that's impossible. How? Scripture teaches, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might be the righteousness of God. I'll put this plainly, and this is going to sound maybe a little shocking. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. At the moment of your conversion, a once guilty sinner is instantly made as holy and as blameless as the Pope or Mother Teresa. And you say that sounds impossible or maybe a little bit disrespectful. I say that to believe otherwise is not the gospel. There aren't grades of holiness. Not how this works. That would mean that Jesus didn't do it all, and I've somehow got to help him out. That I've got to contribute. He got me 90 yards down the field, but i got to punch it across the goal line. That's not the gospel. That's not good news. That's actually really bad news, because if that were true, it means we only have a partially sufficient Savior. The gospel is that Jesus paid it all. 
The righteousness of Christ is a well so deep that you can't add to it. You can only drink from it. And your heavenly Father wants to drench you in it. Let me speak as plainly as I can. We've got to get this. This is referencing one of my favorite preachers, the concise Scotsman from up the road. When you die and you're standing before God and he asks you, on what basis are you here? The very next word that comes out of your mouth reveals what you believe about the gospel. If the first word you say is I, I went to church, I believed, I confessed Christ, I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I gave my money, I did. If the first word is I, you're already off. But if the first word is he, he bled, he died, he did that, Jesus did that, that's saving faith. Back to the text. Fifth word, predestined. It's going to be fun. Literally, this means marked out beforehand. This is basically the New Testament version of the Old Testament, Psalm 139, which says these wonderful, beautiful, tender truths like, before a word was on my tongue, you knew it completely. Every one of my days was marked out in your book before one of them came to be. You formed my inward parts, God. That ought to kill my sense of self-sufficiency and replace it with a sense of profound security in the Lord. Our lives are subject to God's sovereignty, and I ain't God. Predestined for what? Sixth word, adoption, there in verse 5. In Roman law, adopted children had the same rights, the same status, and the same privileges as biological children. God takes initiative to adopt new believers. Children don't select their parents. Parents joyfully, thoughtfully, intentionally do the adopting. I love how the message puts this. It says it this way. A long time ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning that. Seventh word, redeemed. It's down in verse 7. In him we have redemption. Redeemed. The word means free. It's used to describe the emancipation of slaves or someone out of prison. The point is that Christ, in him, sin is not our master anymore. You don't have to do what it says. You look at sin and you go, you're not the boss of me. (laughs) The price has been paid on the cross and you, you get to walk free. It's redeemed. Forgiven. He moves on. We have forgiveness of our trespasses. This is a physical term that means loosing someone from what binded them up. Binded? Bound? Whatever. Loosing someone. In sin, before Christ, I was stuck. I couldn't move. I was immobilized. I was not moving the way I was supposed to be. And then Jesus comes into my life, and those bonds are gone, and now I'm free. That's what freedom in Christ is. Forgiven is one of Paul's favorite terms. He uses it six times in this letter. Eighth word. Lavished. Verse eight. He lavished upon us. God lavished his grace, his love on you. This means excessive. It's in our Father's heart to dump out his goodness on you to the point where it's inescapable. It means beyond the expected. This is going to the restaurant budgeting and ordering an $8 hamburger, and then out comes the $50 filet. 
This is what your Father wants to do for you. More grace, more righteousness than you ever expected in Christ. Inheritors is the next word. Two more. Inheritors. This looks backward to God's covenant with the Jewish people. We are inheritors of the promise. And in no sense does this mean that the church supersedes Israel or usurps Israel. In Jesus Messiah, we have been grafted in and we are a part of his people now. We've joined the family. Last word, slide down to verse 13. In him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed is a great visual word. In Paul's day, a wax seal was placed on a document to certify that the signature on it was authentic. Think about it like a notary public's stamp today. It was attached to goods in transit to show who owned it. This is a representation of the sender. Here's what Paul's saying. At the point of your conversion, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within the believer in such a way so as to mark the believer as belonging to God and it's permanent and it will never go away. Now, let's stop a bit and catch our breath. Those 11 words form the backbone of this entire section. Every one of them Identity words, every one of them telling you who you are. Here's what strikes me about all this. There's absolutely nothing to do here. Did you catch that? There's no commands, just clarity. There's no directions, just declarations. No imperative I need to do, just a celebration of what God has already done. It's like Paul puts this portrait up here and he just sits back and he goes, look at this. (laughs) Look at what God has done in Christ for you. So now I kind of want to ask, that's the text, let's bend this about 90 degrees and let's ask, well, why did God give Paul these words? Why did he choose these? And for that, we've got to do a little bit of cultural history. We said that every city has a dark side. Let's take a minute and understand one of Ephesus's. Ephesus was home to the Greek goddess of fertility named Artemis. We talked about her a little bit last week. As the goddess of fertility in a city like Ephesus, Artemis wanted to bless you with three things. Here they are. Physical beauty, great sex, and perfect kids. Could you imagine what it would be like to be part of a culture that valued those things? Have you ever heard of a culture that overvalues physical beauty, great sex, and perfect kids? I can't imagine what that would feel like, can you? Right next to Artemis' temple was the city gym. This wasn't an accident, this was design. You'd go to Artemis' temple, you'd make your offering, and then you'd head to the gym to make yourself better. And all over the city were these statues. Perfect bodies cut from perfect marble. These statues were the Instagram filters of first century Ephesus. Nobody actually looks like that, right? Nobody actually has that body. But first century Greco-Roman culture puts them up everywhere to cement, pun intended, in your mind, the idea that this is the standard. This is what we're shooting for. This is a sign of Artemis' favor. Good body, good sex, perfect kids. Artemis is blessing you. Imperfect body, not having sex, imperfect kids, Artemis is judging you. And so those statues were not art. They're teaching tools. They aren't just nice to look at. 
They're meant to buttress cultural values. They're not meant to inspire you. They're meant to create an expectation, a standard, and eventually fear in you. Here's what we value, and if you don't measure up, you probably don't belong in our city. Here's where this goes way beyond working out. Here's where this gets dark. This convoluted twisting together of physical beauty and personal worth leads even deeper into Ephesus' dark side. Legalized infanticide. The systemic killing of infants who were inconveniences or who didn't measure up. Infanticide was woven into the Greco-Roman culture and as Ephesus, as one of the empire's crown jewel cities, home to Artemis, center of education, center of the enlightened learners, infanticide was absolutely embedded. A Roman statesman named Cicero, who wrote about 100 years before Paul, said this, deformed infants should be killed or exposed. Exposed meaning just leave them outside. Deformity could be an unwanted child, a sickly child, a deformed child, or simply a wrong sex child. The Stoic philosopher Seneca, who was considered moral in his day, and whose letters were certainly circulating at the same time Paul's were, says this, Mad dogs we knock on the head, unnatural progeny we destroy. We even drown children at birth who are weakly and abnormal. Probably the most famous philosopher of all time, Aristotle, recommends that parents should be compelled by law to openly abandon deformed or handicapped babies. Here's what he has to say. As to exposing or rearing the children born, let there be a law that no deformed child shall be reared. But on the ground of number of children, if the regular customs hinder any of those born being exposed... There must be a limit fixed to the procreation of offspring, and if any people have a child as a result of intercourse against these regulations, abortion must be practiced on it. Tacitus, as a Roman historian, even talks about the skeletal remains of infants found in the Roman sewer systems. Plutarch, also writing about the same time as Paul, talks about the role of a father in this scenario. He says, the father was obliged to carry the newborn child before certain men. It was their business to carefully view the infant, and if they found it stout and well-made, they gave order for its rearing. But if they found it puny and ill-shaped, ordered it to be taken to what was called the depository, as thinking it neither for the good of the child itself nor of the public interest that it should be brought up, if it did not from the very outset appear to be healthy and vigorous." Now, imagine sitting in your first century Ephesian house church, knowing that your neighbor, who doesn't know Jesus yet, is about to have her first baby. And you're a Christian. What do you do? Imagine walking into a library where Ephesus does its reading And you see Seneca's scrolls on the shelves. You see a six-month pregnant woman reading one of them with a heavy and hard face, desperate for an answer, desperate for somebody to help her. And you follow Jesus, 
What do you say? Imagine going to Ephesus's 25,000-seat theater where you see the Greco-Roman values of physical perfection reinforced through story and drama and comedy and tragedy. And over your shoulder, left exposed on the mountain behind you, you hear the cries of unwanted and abandoned children. And you follow Jesus. What are you going to do? And then one night, your pastor sends out a group text. He says, hey, you got to come over. We got a letter from Paul. You sit together in the small living room with a few dozen other believers as someone reads Paul's letter and these 11 words hit you like a freight train, blessed, chosen, holy, blameless, predestined, adopted, blessed, redeemed, forgiven, lavished, inheritors, predestined, sealed. And here's what's really beautiful, though. If you follow the historical accounts, those words that Paul gave them to describe their identity in Christ led somewhere. Archaeologists have found all over the Roman Empire in cities like Ephesus graves, and some of those graves say this, a Christianized name, adopted son of, and then a family name. Name, adopted daughter of, family name. Name. Belonging to the household of. These are orphans of the empire who were adopted by Christians. Here's what this means. Our spiritual ancestors in Ephesus knew what the philosophers and the Stoics and the statements thought about the worth of human life. They walked past the same gym. They sat in the same library. They stood in front of the statues. They knew what Artemis had to say. They knew Seneca's scrolls and Aristotle's philosophy and Plutarch's posturing. They knew all of that, but something inside of them had changed. Jesus had somehow changed them in such a way that they saw themselves and their whole world differently. This is a change that rocked them to their core. And this is where this gets absolutely beautiful to me. Our Ephesian spiritual ancestors took their identity in Christ so seriously that they went up the mountain and they brought them home. The abandoned of the world, the lost, the alone, the inconvenienced, the mistakes, the unplanned, the ones who didn't have a place. Christians brought them home and called them their own. Why? Because they knew what Jesus had done for them. And so they took that mercy and they extended it to others. Giving a vulnerable a new name, a new place, a new family, and a new future. And you have to know, it's very likely that as Paul's words to Ephesus were read over and over again and again and again in the coming months and years and decades and centuries, that there were some sitting in that Ephesian house church that said, adopted? Like me? Is that what God thinks of me? Holy? Blameless? Is that what God thinks of me in Christ? He saw me and chose me and predestined me and he washed me and then he sealed me. Is that who God is? Praise God that Jesus went up the mountain. Because here's the real beauty in all of this. They did what they did for others because they understood it's exactly what God in Christ did for them. Jesus could have stayed up there. (laughs) 
He could have looked down on us and said, nah, not worth it, too jacked up, too far gone. But he didn't. Romans 5.8 says this. God shows his, un- his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Second Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10. Once, you weren't a people. You were out there. You were abandoned. But now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 2 Corinthians 5, 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We don't run toward the darkness with the light of the gospel because it's easy or because it's fashionable or because we're feeling guilty or because we're looking to find our life's purpose or because we're following the trends. We run toward the darkness with the courageous light of the gospel because we have a Savior who went up the mountain to get us. Now, what do we do with all this? We're 2,000 years later. What is our mountain? Just so happens that May is Foster Care Awareness Month. And about a month ago, I was talking with a good friend, Lisa Robertson, who, among other things, is the executive director of Hope Bridge a local organization dedicated to building Christ-centered communities around vulnerable children and their families. And she and I were talking about what Foster Awareness Month might mean for our church here in North Canton, Stark County. So when asking the question, what is our mountain? I want to share a few things with you. First, that's the number. That's the number of open child abuse or neglect cases in Ohio. That's the number that don't have a place yet. Next slide. 493, the number of children in in care currently in Stark County. Stark County has the seventh highest rate of children in care in Ohio. That surprised me when I saw that. It may surprise you. This one I want to sit with. 493, that's the kids in care in Stark County. 391, that's the churches in Stark County. 127, foster homes in Stark County. I hope you can read this last line. I'm going to read it for you. If every church in Stark County had one licensed foster care family, the church would meet 79% of the need. Actually, in talking with Lisa, it's probably more than that with sibling groups. I'm so proud that we have more than one here. (laughs) Defending the value of human life is not just a political discussion. Defending the value of human life is not a theoretical conversation. Defending the value of human life is not just a box to check when you vote every couple of years. Defending the value of human life is a gospel opportunity. This isn't a sales pitch. I'm really bad at doing that stuff. I'm not here to twist your arm. I'm not here to guilt you or manipulate you. But the stats are significant and the need is real. I think, um, I think a lot of times we understand need best when we see it with the wisdom of years. And so this last week, I had an opportunity to sit down with another friend. Uh, her name's Marie. And I just want you to hear her story. And so if you would, turn your attention to the screens. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, it was worth it during that time. And it's a blessing today. 
Okay, I think I'll tell you how it came about. Sure. My parents fostered children. They had a total of 16 children over a long period of time, different ages, some babies, some older. And uh, one winter, my, my dad's health was really in trouble. And the doctor said, you need to get out of town. He was in business. You need to get out of town, go to Florida for the winter and just recoup. Well, they had two boys, age five. Both of them were five years old and both were special needs children. And the caseworkers did not want to move those boys because they had been in other foster homes that hadn't been successful. They were doing very well in my parents' home. And so they approached Bob and I. We were living in an apartment and I said, would you be willing to move into your parents' home and we will just temporarily license you. So we just had them for that season, the winter, until my parents came back. And um, I was pretty young. I think I was 21 or something at that time. And so, my parents came back and we moved into our own home and uh, the caseworkers came and said, would you be willing to be our overflow for newborns? Because sometimes we have more children than we have families for. And so you wouldn't have a child all the time, but be our overflow. Well, I, I just said, of course, of course, we'll do that, you know. And then they would send a cab out from Columbus to pick me up with the baby. And I'd take the baby in and put them, put them in a crib. And before that, they would send a whole layout of clothes, you know, for the adoptive parents to see the child. And I, I'd make two trips like that, the second trip the baby would stay and I would come home with an empty blanket. Yeah. So there were some some tears for me to make that separation. But you know, when God calls you to do something for him, he gives you the strength to do it. And I knew I was sending this child to parents who had been waiting a long time for a child. And I had that pediatrician had explained to me the importance of my role because of the adoptive parents getting a child and they didn't have the experience I had. And so it was good somebody prepared them. So each time that a child was going, I wrote out a whole little letter giving them the child's schedule, giving them medication or whatever and also telling them little things they should know <laughs> in Melinda's situation she was our tenth one and I had almost come to the point where I was just gonna go to work or something <clears throat> caseworker knocked on our door and said we have a newborn in Cleveland Clinic. We have no foster home to take her to. 
We had her longer than we ever had any of the other babies. And uh, at one point, a caseworker said, do you want us to move her? We think she's not going to be cleared for adoption. And we don't want you to get to the place where you can't give her up. I said, we're already there. Now, here she is. I'm In my old age, she's driving me to church. <laughs> I would do it over again. If I wasn't so old, I'd be doing it now. <laughs> they won't let me do it anymore. <laughs> but you know, one of the things that I remember taking a, a child and laying the baby in the crib at, in Columbus at, at family, whatever. And one of the caseworkers said, we always know Mrs. Stratton's babies because they're peaceful. I think that's about the nicest thing they could say. <laughs> and only that can only come from the Lord. Absolutely. And so I think anybody that is contemplating this, spend some time in prayer and the Lord will reveal that to them. And um, remember that you're, you're, putting, you're putting something into that child that's going to be there forever. I mean, even physicians have told me what you're doing to a child you know, at that early stage, is a part of them forever. Yeah, it takes a lot of patience, but if you're doing it in the direction of the Lord, just go for it. Yeah, it has to be a blessing. <laughs> I think that what I want to say now, I don't think you can change a culture by running from it. I think you can only change a culture by running toward it. I told you this wasn't a sales pitch, and I don't believe that God has called everybody to foster care or adoption. No one can do everything, but everybody can do something. And so here's how I want to wrap up today. Um, I believe in making sure that mission is meaningful, meaning do hard things that matter. And I also believe in making mission accessible, meaning put the cookies on the bottom shelf. <laughs> so three words I want to give you as we wrap up today just about mission. Pray, give, go. Pray. Not everyone is called to foster care. Not everyone can provide respite care. Certainly not everyone is called to adoption. I know that. But everybody in this room and everybody watching online can pray. Pray is not like our last line of defense, by the way. This is our first line of offense. <laughs> How should you pray? Pray that God would call people into dark places. Pray that God would raise up people from our church to affirm a child's dignity. Pray that those who are called would have courage and stamina and fortitude and strength and patience to go the distance. Pray that our world would have its eyes open to see the inestimable value of a human life. Human dignity is a God-sized cause that deserves God-sized prayers. So pray. That's your first option. Give. You can give. You can give your money, and that's great. You can donate funds, and that's wonderful. Redirect resources however you want to. But let me push this a little deeper than dollars. Let me ask you to give your platform, to lend your voice, to spend your reputation on causes that matter, 
and defending the dignity of vulnerable children and supporting families who step up to provide care for them matters. This is a cause that's not going away. Human dignity has been the church's mission for going on 2,000 years or so. Find a way to give your life for it. Last option, pray, give, you can go. I believe there are some in this room or some watching online, and you're just waiting for the nudge. Consider yourself nudged. Do something. Stop saying we should and start saying let's. I don't want to over-romanticize this or make it sound like it's easy, because it's not. We have several families in North Can Chapel who have stepped up and said, I will go up the mountain. I will do this because I believe that God is calling me. And so super practically, if you have questions, let's throw that slide back up. We have this foster care info night. It's coming up Wednesday, June 7th, 8 p.m. It's going to be on Zoom. This is not a commitment. This isn't you're signing up for anything. This is just going, hey, I think I just need to follow up on this. Second option, though, maybe you're hearing this and you go, well, I don't feel called to be a foster family, but I feel called to support foster families. Something I want to let you know about. Here in North Canton Chapel, our family ministries team is building what we call care communities because it's often very hard to be a foster care family. Care community makes a meal when a foster family can't. They mow grass when they can't get around to it. They run errands when they're too busy. These are the everyday things of life. And if that's what you feel nudged to, your next step is to take out the card that's on the seat in front of you, write your name, some contact information, and just write care community and put it in the box in the back and we'll do the rest. But before we wrap up this morning, some of you have a different first step. You need to respond to the gospel. Without Jesus, foster care is just a great social program. Without Jesus, adoption is just a warm, fuzzy feeling. Without Jesus, human life just devolves into a political conversation. The only reason to do any of this is because Jesus did this for us. Adoption is what our God does because adoption is what our God is. Our God sent his son who walked up another mountain called Calvary to do what we never could saving us from being lost in sin and inviting us to become part of his forever family. Identity is really powerful, isn't it? God's inviting you this morning to say, okay, I'm stuck on the mountain, Jesus, and I want you to come get me. If you've never said that before, today's your day. He wants to help you. He wants to move you from darkness to light and give you all those things that we just talked about. If you've never confessed Christ, what are you waiting for? So as we wrap up in song, I want to invite you. We're going to stand and sing in a moment. We will. But if you've got something you want to talk about, we're going to have folks back at these red tables in the back. You can go and talk with them. And I want to urge you, if you feel nudged, follow through on what the Lord might be calling you to do. Don't let me manipulate you. Don't let your arm feel twisted. Maybe your actual first step is just to pray and say, Lord, I don't know. Let's pray to him right now, can we? Oh, Lord, we love you. We are so thankful to be called your children. So thankful to be sought out and chosen and called and predestined. All those things, Lord, that we don't deserve, but you gave us anyway because you love us. Why? We'll never understand. So, Lord, give us clarity in these moments. Give us courage. Give us strength and fortitude. Help our church, this church here, 
be a caring community. We know that the need is great and you've called us, Lord, to go do something. So Lord, we're saying yes, whether it's to pray, to give, to go. Lord, speak to us. We love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.